0: Broadcasting live from Bushwick, Brooklyn, you're listening to HeritageRadioNetwork.org. Today's program has been brought to you by Hearst Ranch, the nation's largest single-source supplier of free-range, all-natural, grass-fed, and grass-finished beef. For more information, visit HearstRanch.com.
1: Well, welcome everybody. It's Sunday, so that means it's the main course. I am super excited to have uh, in studio two guys who I really respect a lot, Mark Ladner and Brooks Headley. Um, I want to say we're engineered by Jack Inslee and Joe Galarraga, and thanks to Hearst Rance for sponsoring the show. Well, on behalf of all HRN, I am really excited. In fact, when I said that Mark and Brooks were going to be in the studio, everybody who I work with, uh, Jack and Aaron and Joe, were like, ask this question, ask this question. So the questions are kind of an accumulation of the newly nonprofit staff of HRN. Um, a brief bio, Mark Ladner is the executive chef of Del Posto Restaurant on Manhattan's west side, which he opened in the fall of 2005. The restaurant received a four-star New York Times rating in 2010 and has been honored with one Michelin star. Mark cooks a sensible interpretation of modern regional, Italian-American cuisine, or Cucina New Yorkese. He is also the chef partner at Lupa Osteria Romana and Otto Enoteca Pizzeria. In 2010, he co-authored Molto Gusto with Mario Batali. We also have Brooks Headley in. He is an American musician and chef, best known as the drummer in several hardcore punk and indie rock bands. (laughs) Headley is presently the executive pastry chef at Del Posto, a New York Times four-star rated restaurant in New York City. Well, welcome, guys. Thanks for coming on.
2: Thank you, Patrick. Pleasure to be here.
1: Well, I know this is not your first time at Roberta's. I've uh, seen you guys here before, but uh, never in the studio uh, before on the main course anyway. It's hard
3: to stay
2: away.
1: It's hard to stay away.
3: (laughs) Yeah, we love this place.
1: That's great. So, uh, as I said, uh, you know, these questions are some from me, some from Jack, some from Aaron, some from Joe, um, because everyone's really excited uh, for you guys to be here. When we say a four-star restaurant, that name, you know, is bandied about a lot by all the four-star restaurants, but I believe you guys are the only Italian four-star restaurant, which is an achievement. Um, That's true. Very, very unusual. So, uh, Mark, I'll start with you. Tell me about your influences your early influences, you know, at home and then eventually at the school in Rhode Island?
2: I, uh, <clears throat> I guess, uh, what, what sort of led me to food, uh, in the, in the seventies, my mom was, a, a manager of the, of a, uh, a salad bar on uh, Cape Cod, which was sort of an interesting, uh, concept at the time
1: like a free fixin's bar kind of go up and yeah yeah
2: well it was the 70s so you know people were into eating uh healthy food at the time it was the the beginning of uh hippiedom i suppose communal mustards yeah exactly and then uh you know then i sort of found myself gravitating towards ethnic cuisines uh the town that i grew up in had uh, a tremendous influence of uh Middle Eastern cultures Lebanese Syrian um, And the homes of my friends Were were traditional Homes And I was introduced To some of these flavors That are still some of my favorite today Um, And then beyond that I mean the industry Just kind of chose me I wanted to work Uh, I liked the uh, The pirate ships Of the uh, restaurant community At the time That uh, our good friend Anthony Bourdain has spoke so fondly of over the over the <laughs> years. And it truly was that way and it was a it was an it was an interesting way to uh start adolescence, so to speak.
1: Absolutely. Well, uh, I mean, Middle Eastern cuisine is, is, is my favorite. Ann and I go out to this uh, awesome Middle Eastern restaurant in Bay Ridge uh, mm-hmm. about once a week, and uh, we just love it. And I was say, if I had to be cursed not to eat meat anymore, I would go Middle Eastern 14 you could times a week. Yeah, yeah no, yeah,
3: totally. Like, it, you could make it happen, you know.
1: Yeah, it's really, uh, really interesting. So you're was it the pirate ship that pulled you in i mean if you had gone i mean the pirate ship mentality or were you learning from a grandmother or mother or um, school yeah
2: it was more, it was mostly italian american um you know sandwiches and, and and pizza and uh you know just the camaraderie of a of a restaurant environment small family business kind of thing mm-hmm. and you know at that age there, there aren't a lot of things you can do for work and uh, kept me mostly out of trouble so
1: and then, uh, did you learn a lot? I mean, there's always this question about do you go to school or do you just apprentice? And, uh, you know, I know you went with a very famous uh, other group of New York chefs. I believe mm-hmm. Wiley Dufresne uh, was uh, with you, and uh, there were a few other people. I was,
2: I was more with him than he was with me. Oh, I see. <laughs> I was hanging on to his coattails.
1: What did you learn from school? And do you recommend culinary school to people growing up, I mean, from uh, your perspective?
2: It's it's sort of difficult to say. I think the most important thing is to kind of try to recognize um, your your particular uh, style in which you you prefer to learn. You know, school uh, something structured like that could be very helpful for many people. For others, I mean, I've known very uh, many very talented and successful chefs that haven't haven't gone to school and mm-hmm. uh, have have not uh, you know had any. Any any negative um, experiences hmm. for lack thereof.
1: By the way, I just thought of it, Tannerine, That's the name of the restaurant I oh, yeah, yeah, was yeah, talking yeah. about. Yeah. Tell us student. about about you, Brooks. I mean, your early influences, how you got got into the position you're at in a, in a famous New York City kitchen. Our, our listeners would love to know. Um,
3: I mean, I started making desserts completely by accident. It wasn't. It was never like a planned thing, although my entire life I had really kind of been into food and sort of obsessed with it. Um, And I just randomly got a job many years ago at what at the time was the best Italian restaurant in Washington D.C. And it was pretty much one of those things where, like, even though I hadn't gone to school and I hadn't really cooked professionally at all, like the literally the second that I walked into that kitchen, that professional kitchen. It was like I knew from that point on that this is what I was going to do the rest of my life. Like, hmm. and I, it was late. I was twenty seven at the time too. So
1: now, interesting. You came as a drummer. I always, I was joking with you right before the show, and I know you have an opinion on this. How the pastry chef, the drummer, you could even argue <laughs> the goalie in soccer. You know, or while everyone is doing one thing in a big team of rushing back and forth, practicing, uh, those three positions have in common that they're also doing that, but kind of alone. Or doing different tasks.
3: Well, it's, yeah, it's. I mean, it's a different. It's a different task or whatever. But it's always been my goal, at least professionally in a kitchen, to make sure that like my staff that works with me sort of looks at the what they're making as the same as the savory cooks. Like it's all. Like it's. It's really all just. It's all food, mm-hmm. and even though what we're doing is a different, it's a slightly different skill set. It doesn't necessarily need to have to be so separated. Um. So that's, like, a, that's a, a pretty huge thing for me is to, like, mm-hmm. is to make sure that, like, you know, sweets and desserts are seen as, like, just the stuff at the end of the meal rather than this completely separate, like, there's a, mm-hmm. you know, like, the Berlin Wall comes down right, right. after the last protein course. And then it's, like, all of a sudden you're in a, in a different restaurant, you know, so.
2: And relying on your palate and your sensibilities rather than a formula or recipe mm-hmm. I mean, at the, f- discipline.
3: at the front
1: end, there's the bartender also who's uh, in a similar situation where sometimes it's not viewed as part of the meal, especially in Europe and things like that. But it's a it's a it's a continuum from beginning to end. It's a whole singular. Experience.
3: No, that's like that's a hugely, hugely important thing, because when it comes down to it, the guest that comes in isn't necessarily looking to like check out the ego of this particular part of the kitchen they just want to have an awesome time you know so
1: for sure well how many people on your staff have um, in the back end of the meal
3: um we I mean, we have a pretty big staff because we do a lot of like you know in-house parties and and mm-hmm. private dining and stuff like that so uh it's about a 400 seat restaurant so yeah 400 seats so we have yeah it's, it's,
2: we have about 200 employees
1: wow yeah no it's it's And how many are in the, uh, uh, do you Um, commandeer to, you know, break new ground in the pastry world? I think there's like, there's eight of us
3: right now, which is... Very large. It's huge. Usually it's a person, you know, alone oftentimes. Right, a person alone or like one or or two people or whatever, so...
1: Well, that is a great transition to the next question. I mean, so you start, you know, from humble beginnings and and fast forward and you're trying to maintain a Michelin star and most importantly, a four stars in the New York Times for, you know, only restaurant, Italian restaurant to have that honor. Yeah, it's
2: pretty it's pretty daunting. I mean, to be honest with you, and we haven't told many people, but um, very soon after receiving our, our fourth, fourth star, Brooks and I were so beside ourselves. We really didn't know quite how to digest it. And um, I don't think we've exactly figured out... Um, how-to even to this today, but for the first month or so, we were just... God, it was, it was pretty scary. It was pretty yeah, no, scary. It was, You're it like, it was, was, we lost all our street it was, cred. It was, touch, <laughs> it was touch and go over there for a while. We weren't sure, sure we were going to survive at all.
1: Well, what was it about it? Was it the pressures of maintaining it or that you had finally arrived to a goal you had worked so long to achieve?
2: Uh, I would say it would probably be primarily the, the insecurity of not necessarily feeling... You know that professionally we 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 deserved it, or or that it was even really that much of a a goal of ours to begin with. I mean, from a business perspective, certainly uh, the ownership always made it very clear that that's what the intention of the restaurant was. But at least from my um, perspective as a chef, I, I didn't ever feel I needed that sort of validation. I just wanted to try to cook good food and 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 make. Uh, create a restaurant that was going to be able to to survive financially you know?
1: and when you say that uh, you were um, you know saying oh we, we don 't do we really deserve this? Was it because you had tasted better foods at other places or was it an internal thing about how the management is run you know in your staff
2: or it's a difficult thing because you know Italian food for many reasons has never really been uh, perceived as being Uh, capable, at least in the Manhattan community, of deserving uh, the sort of rating of of four stars but, you know, what we were trying to do was uh, sort of uh, create a a fresher perspective on it's it's actually sort of an old school thing but um, really trying to cater to the uh the needs and desires of of the guests themselves so um that's really what what fine dining is i mean certainly internationally everyone uh understands that a lot of the criteria for fine dining is is changing but um as far as we're concerned it's really just about um catering to the guest
1: well, you bring up an interesting point, and I pose this question to both of you. But, um, you know, on one hand, I, I know what's very important to your restaurants is maintaining tr- truth to a tradition, mm-hmm. whether it be the Chasta Verde region in Rome. We're definitely more
2: of the traditional and classical school rather than the more, more modern school. But, you know, you still have to sort of uh, be trying to create an ideology that is that is mov- moving forward and, and will remain relevant in the Manhattan dining climate. You
3: know? Now, Brooks, right. are your desserts Italian? Yeah. I want to say completely Italian, even though like they're not necessarily like something that you would see in Italy, but like the inspiration and like the, the flavors and the, just the way it's the presentation is, I would say a 100% Italian. It's just, I mean, for a number of reasons, um, like i've i've actually never worked in anything but like an italian restaurant so mm-hmm. like in different like levels i mean mostly fine dining but so that's all i really that's 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 what i know mm-hmm. so and um you know just from like the you know the, from the product and the presentation or whatever like that's like the that's like the most important thing mm-hmm. like um to the point where like you know it, there are times when we have like just the most awesome fruit that we can get our hands on, like, stuff that kind of, like, we, as, like, because we have, we are who we are, like, we can actually get our hands on this stuff, like, Mm -hmm. rather than manipulate it to the point of it's not comprehensible anymore. Right, right, exactly. Like, I'm fine with just, like, you know, presenting it, like, the fruit on a bed of ice to Mm -hmm. the guest or whatever. Not necessarily because I'm being lazy, but just because... Sometimes that's all there is to do, and that's and you know there's really nothing more Italian than something like that, you know. So.
1: Yeah, fresh things like that. Well, I mean, talking about the kitchen itself. I mean, we just walked through uh, Bianca, the beautiful kitchen, and uh, is it true that you got to design the kitchen, Mark of Del Posto? And I mean, how how did you do to, to, now years after?
2: To a certain degree, I mean, uh, I had some influence. Mm-hmm. But uh, we hired a, a very, very professional kitchen designer by the name of Jimmy Yui, who's become a good friend of mine. And uh, his his work was nearly flawless. There was very little that I have complaint with now, even eight years later. And uh, there was no way that I had any of the knowledge necessary to have been able to fill that much square space. <laughs> square, uh, it's yeah. just too... Too daunting to me. I, I could never have looked at a space and, and filled it. I mean, that's part of the thing. You're talking about a you know 24,000 square foot space, like just to make it function is. Uh, it's the as opposite. A, as a whole, of I mean, it was a hole problems. in the hole in the ground, so I, I couldn't have fathomed trying to do something like that. But for the most part, um, it's worked out pretty well. It's it's more of an older school. It's certainly not of the of the. More, more modern, um, international style of kitchen, but it's also a much uh, larger uh, venture than a lot of these other um, smaller boutique places. And uh, you know, the purpose of it is to to create food for, for for lots of people. You know, it's not it's not a vanity project. It's it's a it's a it's a big business
1: mm-hmm. you know? for sure. Yeah. Well, I mean, talking about what fills this kitchen, uh, Jack wanted me to ask, uh, do you listen to Cooking Issues, uh, the the Dave Arnold show? <laughs> and I was going to then use that as a transition into you know the high-tech luxuries and challenges that come with that, mm-hmm. uh, that you have the ability to use at Del Posto, A, to fill up the space, B, because you have so many people coming in, you can do this. So can you talk about... Some of the tools. Well, first of all, do you guys listen to Cooking Issues? I
3: yeah, yeah, I mean, uh, hey, we love Dave, so... Okay. I, I never have listened
2: to the show, but I, but I read it online pretty religiously. Fantastic. And, um, he is certainly uh, an incredible you know, brain of science and food. And just his general sensibility is just hilarious and awesome. Um, I recently was traveling with him in, in Japan... And uh was able to go to, you know, the fish market and uh, a bunch of other places with him and just uh actually watch him work, which is a, <laughs> it's just what type of work of is he
1: doing, like as an example?
2: Uh just mo- modernist style cocktails using a lot of uh you know, uh science uh uh focused equipment, but I mean the guy loves food, and he loves knowledge, and he uh, he ultimately wants things to taste really, really good. So, mm-hmm. I mean, I don't think you'll find very many people in the food community saying that they're trying to make something that doesn't taste delicious.
3: <laughs> True, you know. And the thing about Dave too is like there's like a there's like a sense of humor in his presentation of his like vast, crazy knowledge that yeah. like kind of humanizes it, which mm-hmm. is totally awesome, you know. Mm-hmm. So.
0: I have to say, Mark, you get mentioned quite a bit on the show and not always for cooking. I'm (laughs) going to leave it it
2: at that. (sighs) Oh, God, good thing I don't listen. (laughs) So now,
1: uh, can you tell some of our listeners about some high-tech tools or some of the chefs that might be listening, like things that they might not get access to in a normal everyday kitchen that you guys are trying to master?
2: We decided very early on, Mario and I, that we didn't want to... uh, we wanted to focus on more traditional styles of cooking with uh, fire and things like that. Um, we have invested in a couple pieces of equipment that are exciting, like a, like a, a super freezer, for example, hmm. that um, essentially cryogenically freezes uh, food. Or people, to, uh, or people, or sperm, or whatever, whatever you might want to throw in it. That's big business for the heritage yeah, breed. so That's sperm going around. We're trying around to segue into that time. market, but uh, we haven't got the licensing yet.
1: Create a Cesare breed. I always secretly thought <laughs> Cesare's Stonewall breed was part Cesare. But.
2: That's really gross. Um, thank you, Patrick. Sure. <clears throat> Um, so,
1: um, so you use that, and, and what does that allow you to do? Just preserve things that are getting old, or does that add a certain element of taste? It
2: preserves freshness, oh. um, in ways where uh, oxygen isn't allowed to expand in the freezing process. So, for example, we can buy an entire tuna, one hundred and fifty pound tuna, and um, and break it into small sort of like sushi bars. And freeze it, and if we continue to handle it responsibly, uh, we could take it out six months later, defrost it responsibly, and it's essentially of the age that it was when we put it in. Unbelievable! So it's, how, it's really how cold amazing. is that? It's uh, a scale it's zero. It's negative, negative 80, eighty Celsius. Celsius. Yeah. Yeah. Celsius.
1: Yeah. Right. Yeah. Wow. It's cold. That's It'll, burn you. <laughs>
2: It'll burn you.
3: How big? <laughs> how big is it? I mean, is well, this a big? It's like slightly bigger. I mean, it's like it's about a, the size of a coffin
1: coffin yeah disney walt disney is turning over in his cryogenic machine uh, what about you brooks anything interesting uh, that you get to play with or try to figure out
3: um, i uh, i mean like we have like we have that freezer which i, I obviously i use for for me i use it in you know, for purposes of speed like i can get stuff frozen very quickly mm-hmm. um, i mean for the most part like um, I'm kinda of, i i tend to be more of like the grandma style in terms of like mm-hmm. of of techniques or whatever um not because i'm necessarily opposed to modern techniques or don't know about them i do um it's just for what we do I find that like oftentimes if we're researching a technique for a dish or whatever like and we'll try a bunch of like sort of crazy stuff, it usually comes back to like. Like the Nona with the bowl, mm-hmm. tearing the stuff, not even using a knife, kind of thing. So, <laughs> um. that's
2: that's really the spirit that we always wanted to uh, maintain and retain. Uh, the restaurant's now almost eight years old, or at least from the time that we purchased the equipment. So, we we recently have have bought like uh, newer and more modern stuff, but most of the choices we made were more uh, driven by. Uh, ecological ideology okay. and buying things that um, created less of uh, a carbon footprint um, more electric and more um, what's that called? Induction. Which gives off a lot less heat, a lot less carbon and allowed us to turn down for example our hood fans and things. So that we were just, uh, you know, expelling less energy in general, Mm -hmm. um, which is, you know, something that's important to us. You
1: were very always into that with from the water. And in fact, I think like the forager was a role that was pioneered maybe in the 70s and 80s. You guys helped pioneer this kind of HACCP plan ecological person. Wasn't Elizabeth Meltz came and talked to us about all that.
2: She's helped us so much. And, uh, you know, it was sort of a, a serendipitous situation, but she... She started as a cook at Del Posto and then became our kitchen manager and then created this position for herself in Mario's office where, you know, several years ago there was really no room or no one sort of had the sort of a vision to be able to, uh, to I don't know, expend the amount of, uh, I guess what I'm trying to say is that it's it's turned out to be a tremendously valuable thing for not just El Poso but for the rest of the restaurants in our organization because um, for example the health department has become uh, much more vigilant in trying to uh, you know get people and restaurants to uh, perform in uh, responsible ways mm-hmm. and she helps keep us correct and she helps keep us uh informed about, about what's happening out there and it's, it's been a tremendous advantage for us and at this point I couldn't imagine not having her in that role.
1: Does it save money just like yes or no like in the end are you actually Well
2: in fines that she saves us <laughs> alone I'm sure she pays for her salary and that's the other thing you know in, in, a, in a larger corporation like ours like we can justify a lot of these things financially which is a, a tremendous luxury.
1: Well, you brought up something else once I asked you what cuisine do you find the most fascinating? Many years ago, you responded with Japanese cuisine. I don't know if that's all the same, but since then, I've asked hundreds of chefs that question, and men, so such a high percentage agree with you. So you were just there. What impresses you so much about Japanese cuisine? I ask you too, Brooks.
3: Um, I like, uh, like, there's just this obsession with like, Like kind of like one thing sometimes, yeah. And that's like the singular concept is what I found the
2: most interesting. I mean,
3: interesting, and and just like the fact that like if you like you can work for a sushi chef and for years not do anything but like make the rice, fan fan the rice,
1: (laughs) fan the rice. Yeah,
3: that's a good job for you, Patrick.
1: I'll do it. Man, I would go crazy. I'm so ADD.
3: (laughs) But but even like if you like if you're in Osaka or Tokyo. Um, and I've been a couple times like just the like the just the commitment to ex- like complete yeah. excellence of like mm. almost everything like food related is like it's just so advanced and like it's Such like
2: diligence and determination and just that singular focus on for example if you go to a tempura restaurant like you can only have fried food and if you don't want that you are fucked and you have
3: to go next door <laughs> um, and, and but that's alright because there's like six places yeah, exactly. down yeah, the yeah. street in up up in the top of the building through the weird elevator
1: so the people are eating out a lot in that in that culture right i mean there are a lot of little restaurants i mean they're eating a-
2: in the subway they're eating in the sub basement of malls it's re- it's really bizarre a lot of the japanese aren't eating on street level um is it clean and safe and all that absolutely it's yeah. just it's just overwhelmingly dense.
1: You know? Yeah, it's, it's a lot of people. <laughs> there are a lot of people in those big cities. And like what you see
2: proliferating in, in Manhattan, for sure, but certainly other parts of the country, is like this, uh, this uh, concept of azakaya, which is sort of like a, a, a Japanese restaurant that does a little bit of everything. Um, I actually didn't see very many azakaya in, in Japan at all. Um, like, if you go to um, a yakitori Uh, yakitori restaurant you are eating chicken on a stick and that's it
1: Hmm. Hmm. very interesting that's funny i was uh wanting to invest significant you know money for me significant in a single alcohol or two you know i was like what what i do and sure enough i come driving with the car with the back full of sake you know because i find that the nicest drunk and it's also like i mean you know kind of high and it's so refined it's not wine it's not beer so uh, it's what made me want to ask the question but um, no, very, very interesting stuff. Um, well, I mean, I wanted to ask you guys. Uh, well, Brooks, this is for you. I wanted to know. Uh, Aaron asked this question, our executive director of org. What do you think about the recent trends of restaurants slash catering companies outsourcing their pastry production? Basically, not keeping a pastry crew in house.
3: I mean, I've, like, I mean, I've heard, I've i've heard about that and i guess it usually comes down to not having to have you know a pastry chef or like a pastry staff on the payroll and being able to like say get something from that's like sort of in like that same way like singularly made ice cream or whatever it's you find the best like sort of outsourced ice cream and then you serve that you know um and, you know i've i've Maybe not so much in New York, as far as I know, but in other cities, I've heard about that a lot, like in like smaller restaurants or whatever. Um, But um, you know, I I, it really depends on like the size of the place. And but it could also be a restaurant
1: getting big and saying, "Hey, let's find one test kitchen that produces everything and then gets it back out."
2: Yeah, yeah, I know. I mean, that yeah, that could consolidating resource
3: and right, right.
1: I mean, can you guys do that? I mean, have you guys ever thought about a fast food franchise? That still produces very high quality thing? I mean, can you wrap your head around that? Because that is a big answer. It would provide a lot of answers to an American population that suffers from, you know, in many ways dealing with food. So it'd be interesting to get your guys' perspective.
2: Fast food pastry departments? Or fast food (laughs)
1: just bringing what you guys do to, you know, a, a wider level. Like maybe, could there be gas stations that serve your kind of food on an industrial uh, level
2: Patrick we have more ideas <laughs> related to this than the constraints, time constraints of the right <laughs> It's yeah it's, it's it's super true so
1: can you tell us the best idea I mean if so you had to go with one just right now
2: this, it's my jam
1: 100 million dollars what would you guys, would it be a taco place would it be a hamburger joint mm. too much next question Grass-fed versus grain-fed thoughts? No. Um, well, that's uh, very interesting. Well, this is from Aaron. Uh, we're just kind of... Uh, this is now the hodgepodge of questions. You can see uh, the ones that uh, they would walk out on me if I didn't ask. Uh, Aaron actually asked... Uh, well, I won't even ask her, her off-the-record questions. But is it hard on your back being tall in the kitchen?
2: No, uh, not particularly. I have, I, have, I have two words of wisdom change your socks often and and rotate your shoes
1: change your socks often you know jordan used to rotate his shoes every game so uh, See, there you go yeah so you rotate them we're That's trying to bring that
2: same level of vis- viscosity to the to the kitchen
1: well for our listeners who've never seen mark he is built he is very 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 strong great stomach muscles. built
2: by beer
1: <laughs> great posture um, well, uh, then, is there a food trend you would like to see, but haven't? Not really.
2: Seventy salad bars, Patrick. <laughs>
1: Seventy salad bars. <laughs> Are you trying to give your mom just, that? Just uh, like,
2: just like the Google cafeterias. Have you been? Have you checked? Yes, that I have
1: been to one of those.
2: Fascinating. Do they do a good job? Amazing. I thought so, yeah. You're talking here in front of Chelsea Market or out on the I, West Coast? I've only seen the one here, but yeah, I was I was really impressed. I, I want to work there.
1: I've been out to the <laughs> Google guys in, in the Valley, Silicon Valley, and they have like, you know, you can choose from amongst 12 places. Each one specializes in, o- in its own thing, right. and the employees are provided bicycles so that they can get back and forth. Um, yeah. So what What fascinates you about that so much? The number of people they serve or...
2: Um, j- just the fact that they had enough vision to keep everything in-house and to treat their employees so well that they don't particularly want to or have any real reason to leave so they could just work all the time. <laughs> <laughs> and they're eating leaves. <laughs> yeah. No, they eat really healthy. They, I, I guess part of the strategy I was told is that they put the l- the least healthy food sort of at the very end of the queuing system hmm. so that I guess in theory, you would fill your plate with the healthier stuff first, which uh, I'm sure for a corporation that size with that many employees, um, healthcare costs are mm-hmm. uh, are an issue.
1: Whole Foods, you know, rewards their employees for passing certain tests, uh, you know, and reaching certain marks, and then they get discounts on their insurance. It's a very awesome. interesting. Uh, is that something Del Posto employees should look forward to? Is a new uh you know, staff meal is now going to be spread throughout the restaurant. Sure. (laughs) Um, well, uh, let's see. Um, I guess we're coming kind of towards the, uh, the end of the interview. Um, you guys have been absolutely, uh, great to, to be on. I guess I'd like to ask you, uh, is there a, a thing or two that stands out to you most having worked with Mario and Joe for so long, uh, is there a, a lesson you carry from them more than others?
2: Good Lord, Patrick, where 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 do I begin?
1: I know, I know you guys are so close. So that's uh, it's a tough question. This was I mean, not written earlier. They, this, I mean, they, they've
2: been obviously a tremendous influence on my career, and I owe so much of what I've been able to achieve to their support and um, their ultimate vi- vision. Um, they've taken. Uh, Italian dining in America to places that maybe it would never have reached without their involvement um, and they continue to support you know their valued employees in ways that um, that keep them loyal which is uh, a tremendously uh, valuable skill um, in the longevity of any
3: any career or uh, or the you know the life of a corporation hmm. What about you, Brooks? Um, Malto Mario was just, like, the greatest TV show. So... <laughs> yeah. I mean, it was literally, like... Where are you, Malto Mario? <laughs> it was, like, like as, like... Uh, it was even before, like, I cooked professionally or whatever. Like, I would watch that show and I'd be, like... This guy's completely insane. He's, like... He's cooking in real time. And he's just talking the whole time. Literally, like, just, like... Projectile vomiting information. <laughs> yeah, no, exactly. Like, in this way that, like... Like, I... It was like, like blew my mind, like couldn't, I mean, especially at the time, like
2: information wasn't streamed that way. It was almost impossible to, di- to digest because nobody, yeah, nobody yeah. did it that way. Nobody. Hmm. And We're- unfortunately, none of the shows are like that anymore, which is quite sad. But, um, well,
1: don't even get me started. I mean, since the Food <laughs> Channel started 15 years ago, there has not been 30 minutes of serious content.
2: That's why radio's back, Patrick. Radio's back, baby. I'm talking (laughs) pesticides,
1: slaughterhouses, animal rights. I mean, go on and on and on. Uh, I could care less about some foie gras producer in Northern California that got thrown in jail. I mean, the crimes against our animals are being committed on a much bigger level by, you know, much bigger companies. Of course, uh,
3: absolutely. Someone
1: has to cover those issues sometimes. Not all the time. They don't have to change the focus of their paper. But to write about these issues, like food, without covering the biggest obstacles to those foods, you know, seem somewhat unfair. So. I
2: was telling uh, Brooks actually on our ride over here about how uh, our relationship, your, yours and mine, started when uh, when Heritage first started getting into the wholesale game and some of the trips that you took me on out west to meet the farmers and see the animals and um, it was just such a revolutionary idea and I'm so glad that it's been able to you've been able to make it and continue to make it so successful because uh, people really need access to uh, to that sort of responsibly and sustainably raised livestock that, that didn't exist before you, Patrick. Oh, You're stop. You're a pioneer.
1: <laughs> well, it's funny. Everyone's like, why the red waddle? And I was like, you know, when I thought about it, I was like, because Mark Laudner came to Kansas. It's with, juicy. It's <laughs> juicy, but he it could have been a Gloucester Old Spot that he had tasted, and it would have been the Gloucester Old Spot substitute red wattle with Gloucester Old Spot if it had been a large black. Because those
2: little waddles crisp up so nice.
1: <laughs> they are not edible. <laughs> no, but it was a very very historic meeting. Uh, there's about sixty thousand pounds of meat sold fifty two weeks a year, thanks to something that you're still one of the top. Three biggest buyers always usually the number one biggest buyer across all the restaurants across the nation That 60,000 pounds of meat a week over eight to ten years you can imagine uh it's pretty pretty powerful so um thanks for sticking with us all those years like when i was delivering meat in a u-haul truck and i remember oh uh, <coughs> brother that was before elizabeth melts
2: shout out to pala
1: Yes, who, by the way, was on a couple weeks ago and was so fantastic. I mean, that guy has got such a great sense of humor and way of synthesizing things that everyone thinks about but doesn't really know anything about. Celebrity Butcher. Celebrity given giving,
2: giving Dario a run for his money. <laughs>
1: we had a staff meal yesterday, and I was so proud. Nick Fantasmas was there, and Silva from the Heritage Meat Market. I was like, I love that we have a party, and there's not one, but two butchers present, full-time. Anyway, thanks so much for coming on. Really, thanks, you Spencer. guys should be on a thousand Thank more you, times. <clears throat> we had 400 more questions, but uh, I really look up to you guys. You guys... Do it with class, and uh, you live uh, up to your expectations very, very well. So it's a real honor for the network to have you on.
2: Thanks, Patrick. Thanks, guys. Patrick. Right. Hearst Ranch Grass Fed Beef, pasture raised on 150,000 acres in Central California. Hearst Ranch Grass Fed Beef, free range, sustainably produced, humane. first ranch grass-fed beef the authentic flavor of the american west
1: all right wow what an interview um joe what did you think of that interview
0: it was pretty uh, pretty awesome it was cool that you got such such uh food stars in the studio Patrick.
1: would you go so far as to say it was one of the top 400 interviews i've ever done yeah definitely top 400 maybe oh. even maybe even top 300 350 let's say 350 well we are in studio right now with one of uh, my favorite people over the years of Roberta's but you were fide definitely and Saxelby's favorite she when she heard that you were Yay. coming on she's like tell Katie hi so we are in studio with Katie Peets who hi. is the pastry chef of Roberta's welcome Katie
4: thank you thanks for having me
1: oh I'm so excited you could be on so um, tell us about, tell us about your pastry philosophy just for people who haven't been to Roberta's recently uh, to understand uh, what inspires you.
4: Well, I think my philosophy is always evolving and changing, but I've been doing pastry here for the past year, and before that, I was doing savory at Roberta's, mm-hmm. and before that I was doing savory, and that's what I went to culinary school for, so I feel like my food definitely has that, like, savory element, but still being dessert, um, earthy, bitter flavors, a little salty, but you see salt in a lot of desserts now. But yet still being, you know, dessert nostalgic and bringing back childhood memories Mm -hmm. and just having something that you would want to... Still be part of the meal, but end your meal with.
1: Hmm. So you had no intention of becoming a pastry chef when you first started working on Savory Roberta's?
4: No. Wow. How did that happen? Um, Our pastry chef left in February, and Carlo just kind of, to me, out of the blue, asked me. But I was talking to Brandon about it, and he's like, no, Brandon, we talked about it. (laughs) But it was out of the blue for me. Um, I was just at a point where I was ready for something new and different. And it just kind of happened. And I wasn't even sure about... I was a little reluctant about taking it, but I love it. And I have a sweet tooth, definitely. Mm-hmm. And it's just really fun. You get to be a little bit more creative. And you, you, your brain functions a little bit differently than unsavory, which I like.
1: Well, for sure. I mean, when Brooks was on, we were laughing that the pastry chef, the drummer... In a band. And then the soccer goalie, you know, while, like, the whole band is, like, hanging out, the drummer is, like, putting his things together kind of, like, off to the side. A whole different set of drills. Mine thinks in a different way. Um, super interesting. By the way, where, you said culinary school. Where did you go again?
4: I went to... The French cleaner Institute. Oh yeah, Dorothy Ann that-
1: Hamilton. I
4: know. You've
1: seen her around, yeah, huh? Her she's show. Awesome. Yeah, she's got a really good show. So you're from Omaha, Nebraska, yeah. center of the country. Or no, you're from? Well, uh,
4: I grew Nebraska. up in a small town, but I went to college in Omaha at Creighton. Okay. And I most of my friends are in Omaha.
1: So did you grow up on a farm? No. No.
4: <laughs> I think I've I'm always asked that question. Um, no, I did not grow up on a farm, but. My, both of my parents are from pretty small towns. My mom grew up in a town of 800, Hmm. and they were like the bankers of the town, and even though my grandpa didn't farm, he still had a pasture in his backyard Hmm. and rented out the land.
1: So, what did you grow up eating?
4: I grew up eating typical Midwestern food. Uh, Potatoes. Yeah. steak, Steak, of course. Lots of, like, casseroles kind of food that you don't want to eat every day but when I go back home I love eating it.
1: Oh brother. So what were your early influences? I mean when did you first know that you were going to dedicate your life or at least make a run for it in food?
4: You know it's interesting. I didn't really start cooking until I was in high school and that was just... I don't even know how I got into it. My mom it's a, she's a good home cook but nothing crazy and my grandma's are, it's the same thing, but... I had a couple aunts that mm-hmm. like to cook a lot, and I just... There's, like, little defining moments when... And we love to travel, and food is such a huge part of traveling.
1: Around the U.S. or the world?
4: Um, The world. I'm not, like, a world traveler, but even... I, I mean, I studied abroad in the Dominican Republic in college. Places that aren't even foodie places, but mm. it's just... I think I just was so drawn to that culture and that's how you connected with somebody that you don't even know their language. But I did do a summer program in Ireland and I got to go to Italy for two weeks. Mm -hmm. And I just traveled along the um, Amalfi Coast. And I think I was in Cinque Terre and I was like, oh my God, this is like, this is what I'm supposed to do. Yeah, this is, I'm going to culinary school.
1: Now, since we're talking about, uh, uh, you know, when you told me you had a pet pig and (laughs) you were from... Nebraska, I wasn't surprised, but this pig actually was from Chile. So Chile was, uh, the country Chile was a big influence on you. You yeah. lived there for yes. a while. Tell I, us about that experience, I, why you were there.
4: So after culinary school, I stodged, which is like the culinary term for interning for free, um, at Blue Hill in the city. And it was great, and I learned a lot, but I was just ready for to not be in a little cement kitchen box 24 hours a day not having a life
1: how old were you at the time
4: i uh, 22 wow, 20, okay. 23 maybe yeah um yeah and then so i just knew i needed to get it out and i and i wanted to travel again um and i found a job cooking at a fly fishing lodge in patagonia in the middle of nowhere and myself and two other cooks flew out there it was all our first time and we <laughs> worked for just this fly fishing lodge for like five months and how did you find the job from here i found it on the french culinary institute Hmm. website but the other two had found it through craigslist and actually oddly enough max the chef de cuisine was at that same lodge cooking two years before i was what a small world yeah i mean only a handful of people have done that job
1: i have a small world story with max he used to be the chef of eve restaurant in michigan and he always got had to deal with me because she would order shanks every week and then sure enough years after we knew each other he's like I'm the max from Eve I'm like oh my god what a small world so um and what did you learn in Chile I mean what uh what do they do that you still carry with you
4: I think the fact of where I am now probably wouldn't have happened if it weren't for Chile I mean we had a lot of responsibility obviously since we're in the middle of nowhere we couldn't really buy a lot of food So we made everything We did our own bread Our own sourdoughs All our soups were from Stocks that we made um, We would do Lamb roasts Once a week mm-hmm. From the neighbors Down the street Who raise the lamb and
1: All grass fed right? The beef down um, there? Or do they also
4: No It is mostly grass fed But actually They've I think gotten, they, would, they
1: figured out Corn by now
4: Yeah I think they would I know some of them Were finished on grass
1: Okay On, um, on corn
4: yeah, yeah. Finished okay. on corn, like raised on grass, finished on grain. Um, but it was like it was amazing.
1: How long were you there?
4: Just for five months, fly fishing season. Wow. And then, yeah.
1: That's awesome. Well, then you come back to the city and yeah. and hook up with Robertas, and now you're as a pastry chef in this competitive world. I mean, how the hell do you deal with it? I posed the same question to Mark Ladner and Brooks Headley earlier. There's a lot of pressure out there. I mean, there's a million restaurants doing desserts. How do you cope with that and be unique while still doing traditional things?
4: I honestly don't ever think of it that way. I don't... The only pressure I have is the pressure I put on myself. And just... I think it's good. It's a healthy pressure because you're in the best food city, arguably the best food city in the world. And Mm -hmm. it is really competitive, but I'm a competitive person and... I function better in that tor- sort of environment and being at Roberta's I feel like we're far enough outside of Manhattan that you just are doing what you love and mm-hmm. you know you just you still have amazing resources and I love I love going to the farmer's market and I love you know our forager and the fact Melissa metric our who does the garden I mean she's amazing so when you have all those things that like inspire you you don't you're not thinking about Oh I need to think About being creative And mm-hmm. I need to think Of something really cool
1: How does that relationship Work with the gardener Do you commission Certain things Or does she provide And then you try To use them
4: We She's the, So this is her second summer And last summer Was you know She's just kind of like Pretty much rebuilding The whole thing But mm-hmm. in the spring She sat down With all the cooks And was like What do you want me to grow um, And she brought In magazines And showed us seeds hmm. Um And basically, she knows more about plants than I do, so I trust her. But she does a great job.
1: So what's on the menu, for instance, like today, if someone were to come after the show?
4: Um, Well, a brunch, we don't—we do gelato if you ask for it. Okay. And so I think my flavors today are chocolate, and I usually have two flavors, and then like— Rum raisin? No, no. (sighs) I know that's so funny. That's that's my favorite, favorite and your dad's favorite, my grandpa's favorite,
1: grandpa's. Oh I know. And I
4: tried making a rum raisin once, and I've yet to like. I was Nail like it. okay, but I think haagen Doss's rum raisin is amazing. Yeah, they're, they're a, good, right? Yeah, I think they're one of the best. If we're going to talk about store ice cream. But, so I have gelatos, but then my two desserts, I always try to have like one that's a little bit different. Okay. And that one is, I just put on and I really like it. It's a watermelon radish gelato. So Mm. I actually steep slices of watermelon radish in my milk and then use that milk to make the gelato. And then it has um, like sour watermelon gummies and little watermelon pieces and a macadamia nut crumble. Oh man. It's different. It's kind of funky because radish isn't necessarily a, a dessert food. But that's why I like it because it kind of pushes it.
1: How does the tasting process work here? I mean, you come up with the dessert, and then will you present it to Max and Carlo, or?
4: Um, I I usually just kind of whatever I have in my mind in the beginning never ends up like that. So I just kind of play with flavors, and I'll talk to them and say, "These are what they, this is what I want to do. I want to use this ingredient and this herb and this texture," and then I just make stuff, and it's not like I it has to get okayed by them but it's they I mean they help me through the process sure. so it's, it's a like collaboration. yeah yeah I, I mean I want their input
1: so what have you learned I mean Carlo is a very well respected chef Roberta's obviously is a critically a came restaurant what would you say like for our listeners you know who might want to get into the industry what have you learned working at Roberta's and at uh, Bianca the new tasting Blanca. restaurant Blanca
4: sorry. um I've I've learned that, I think for one, you just need to be a hard worker. And that's what's going, I mean, that's what's saying any restaurant. You need to learn how to work really hard. Mm-hmm. And you need to know your ingredients. That's one thing I learned from Carlo. Just mm-hmm. knowing your ingredients. Don't don't try to mess with it too much. Um, that's connected to simple. what Mark and
1: Brooks were saying. That They love Japanese food because of the singular concept. That yeah. single item and getting the most of it. Yeah, rather than overwhelming
4: complicated. Totally. And that's Carlos heavily influenced by Japanese food as well and mm-hmm. yeah, it's just Raw like fish. there's a purity about it that you can't find in a lot of other cooking.
1: Purity like Philadelphia cream cheese. <laughs> Tell us yeah. about that—the famous lemon cheese Oh
4: my cream gosh! So embarrassing.
1: By the way, just to, so you don't feel so bad, Mark Gladner says the best mustard in the world is Goulden's, and he uses Goulden's in the kitchen. So you're That's not alone. That's a little
4: different. Well, this is for a contest. That was actually right when I got back from Chile, and is before I started working here. And my friend's a videographer. One of my best friends is, and there is this. And I have another friend whose aunt is like the food stylist and like part of the team of Paula Dean and they were like oh well you know she's doing this Philadelphia cream cheese contest I don't I couldn't tell you the last time I had Philadelphia cream cheese Um it's great stuff though it's awesome Listen, I
1: have it every weekend on my bagel it's pretty really? tasty it's just not what the original cream cheese was and says like her cream cheese is very I guess bitter or sour or something like that
4: Um it's well, yeah, I mean, Not it's very smooth, processed. Yeah. But it's it was really fun doing that. And that was even before I was doing pastry. So I look back at that and I'm like, oh, my God. Things have
1: changed.
4: Yeah. But it was it was really fun doing that. So um,
1: now that you, it's funny, I've noticed this trend in uh, sweets where there's more savory added to it. And it's interesting, your career as an example, being savory and then going to sweets. Is it gone too far? I mean, talking about trends, I mean, there's sometimes people wanting a dessert and instead they get like a an after-dinner appetizer.
4: You know, it honestly just depends on the person and the restaurant experience that they're having. I mean, essentially, when you go out to eat, you are eating somebody else's palate. You know, it's not... Mm. So yeah, it's like a balance between that and then also being satisfied with the food that you're eating and, and that you're paying for it. I think maybe it can go too far, but it's just about balance, you know, and everybody's taste buds are so different and everybody wants something different. And, you know, if you want something really sweet, just can go to the bodega and get a chocolate bar but if you <laughs> want to look at dessert as part of the meal and something different and something that's like you look at and you're like there's i don't even know how they made this i couldn't i couldn't make this it just depends on what mm-hmm. you want
1: it's important when you go to a restaurant you should why i always think be as open as possible to new experiences that you can't duplicate so easily as a yeah. uh, as an, a novice Well, I mean, that's an interesting thing. So should people be ordering dessert at the beginning of meals? (laughs) I've I've never understood that because Brooks just said it a few minutes ago. He doesn't want to be viewed as something after dinner, something separate from it. It's part of a whole experience, just like Damon says the same about cocktails before the meal. Um, So how come people don't, uh, would you do better if you had 45 minutes or an hour to prep?
4: What do you mean forty five minutes? Like or an if hour? someone
1: ordered at the beginning of the meal oh. and so you got your dessert order two hours or an hour and a half before would that change anything it if you had that time?
4: No for me it wouldn't because I have all my stuff ready by five o'clock when we start dinner. Hmm. The whoever is working on the salad station is plating my desserts. So it wouldn't really affect me. Um I think it'd be interesting. I I don't know that I would necessarily want to go at the beginning of the meal or serve a dessert at the beginning maybe feels like a little bite of something but i um i think that i would just like people to always have dessert in the back of their head while they're eating so they don't just eat a ton of food and like are completely stuffed for yeah
1: totally yeah for dessert yeah you have to really keep it in mind it'd be interesting to see at least i think at the very least the dessert should be presented on the menu so that people see it and then when it's dessert time they get that same menu back so that they they can plan it because you know in the end then they might get and be like oh my god i love that dessert i should have saved some room but they didn't know going in
4: yeah
1: uh anyway well it's just interesting do you have that problem yes i'm just like (laughs) i got too fat from eight to ten PM, and now that's why Fernet exists and weed. It yeah. uh, were you part of that weed dinner? I
4: was. What um, did you do? I so I made, I made a des- I made the dessert. Um, it was it was actually a really good dessert, and I, I don't particularly like smoking weed and. Um, but So I looked at it as just another herb to cook with. And that was really cool because it's got a very distinct flavor. Hmm. And it was fun to match it and see what it works with and what it doesn't work with. Um, and I learned a lot. It was like a science experiment. It was so cool. <laughs> and it was just really fun. I, it was just really fun. And it was a cool experience. But I I made a parsley wheat cake. And then I did all sorts of little like crumbles. And I did a hemp seed granola crumble hmm. that I actually put on the menu now, but without THC. Okay. Put on the menu now. I was now. about to
1: run out. <laughs> Order
4: it. I put it on the menu now with um, with a cherry hyssop semifredo. And oh. I think I love that dessert. And I don't really like cherry that much, but I really like it with hyssop is anise hyssop. So it's um it's got that, it's like a fennel herby hmm. flavor. But because we're in summer and we have hyssop plants instead of just fennel seeds, it's like this awesome earthy flavor without the medicinal Component that his or that fennel usually has.
1: Ah, oh, very interesting. So, uh, favorite ingredient of the season is it?
4: Ooh, that's a tough one. It changes every week. Really? Right now, um, well, corn. What's the it
1: ingredient?
4: The it ingredient. I mean, there's a. F- Can I give you top five?
1: One hundred percent.
4: Okay, I love. TriStar strawberries, which I get at the market. What do you mean, um, the little guys, yeah. the little wild ones?
1: Oh my god, those are the best. Fran- How, do they domesticate those or are those wild?
4: They they say that they're a, like a hybrid between wild ah. and. But this woman Franca with her Stanberry Treasures has like the best TriStars ah. ever. I like those. The plums this year are amazing. The yellow ones, I think they're called. I can't remember what they're called. Like Shiro Plum.
1: Is that raised here in this in I've this been region? getting them
4: at Locust Grove, at, which is also at the market. They're like one of my favorite apple and plum. Mm. Um, Franca also has these really good black raspberries. We have wild red raspberries that the bush was here before Melissa. And they're really good. The Sun Gold Tomatoes. I really like Sun Golds.
1: Interesting. So they're like tomatoes, huh? I mean, they're just They're tomatoes.
4: They're so sweet, sweet, though. They're the yellow ones. They're always like, sweeter.
1: Tomato is a fruit now. One mustn't forget.
4: Yeah, they're amazing. Um, I have one more ingredient, but I I feel like I need to be really careful about this. Don't Um, worry, no
1: one is listening. We have absolutely no (laughs) listeners, right? Joe, you can confirm that, right? Yeah, just check the stream. Nobody listening. Nobody listening. It's official.
4: Um, I don't know. I'm excited for really good corn to come in. But I'm from Nebraska, and I have yet to taste any corn in New York that compares to Nebraska.
1: You are the Corn Belt. I mean, we always joke uh, at the office. I'm always asking everyone to rate the top 10 terroirs in America. Hmm. And everyone's like, Oregon. And uh, what about, you know, Napa Valley? And I'm like, dude, what about the Corn Belt? Like, that feeds the world. Yeah.
4: It gets really dry sometimes, though. Huh.
1: Huh. So you like corn? That was the one you were afraid to say?
4: No, but I just need to be careful about it because I only have one more choice left.
1: Oh, I see. That's what you meant. I thought it was a secret, like Mark Wadner not telling us about his uh, next franchise idea, (laughs) which is my last question for you when you're done. So what's the last one? So far we have the tomatoes, we have the...
4: I think think that was all of them. Tomatoes, corn, tri-star strawberry, black raspberry.
1: A black raspberry? And then... The Plum? The Plum. Yeah.
4: I, but, like, if you ask me that question in 10 minutes, I could give you... All right, we should have a
1: top five list uh, every few weeks and just see how it changed. Yeah. It would be an interesting documentation. So, you know, as a last question, we always are such fans of, of the culture that you guys push forward day in and day out. Um, what trend would you like to see um, that you haven't seen yet? Almost like with an eye towards maybe it becoming a national phenomenon versus just something that happens in Brooklyn or in Man- on the East Coast.
4: Is this like trend as in restaurants or just, just something, or? Yeah, Is
1: there something that America should have on its everyday Applebee's menu or an ingredient or something that like if you were I, given a million dollars to open a fast food chain Ugh. with what you do. Like, that sounds
4: scary. <laughs> um, I mean I think like like you said it, I think creating a, more of a culture in restaurants and finding which I think was why I've, I'm at Roberta's and why I love it is that is you know it's not just a restaurant; it's a culture and it caters to anyone who wants to spend who, and who has a lot of money, or anyone who doesn't have a lot of money True. and can still come in and have a really good meal. Mm-hmm. Um, but mostly a culture like you can't you can't really pay for culture you know it's got to be created and there's few places that do that
1: Mm -hmm. yeah this is a real it's got its own orbit that's for sure people haven't been they should come they get a chance to taste katie pizzas delicious
4: make sure you save room for dessert
1: yeah please save room for dessert or nip it in the bud put the dessert on the menu so people can plan for it at least or even order it some people might be so sure early on um, anyway, well, it it's always so nice to see you. You're such a positive energy. You're so talented Thank with you. what you do in the kitchen. So thanks so much for coming on. It's thanks. a real honor. And we'd love to have you back. I mean, top five ingredients. Top five. Everyone would want to hear that. <laughs> well, we've been engineered by Joe Galarraga, sponsored by Hearst Ranch. Thanks to Mark Ladner and Brooks Headley and Katie Peets for being on. And we'll see you next week on The Main Course.
0: Thanks for listening to this program on heritage radio Network.org. You can find all of our programs archived on our website or by searching iTunes for Heritage Radio Network. You can find us on Facebook or follow us on Twitter at heritage underscore radio. You can email us at info at heritageradionetwork.org. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization. To donate and become a member, visit our website. Thanks for listening.